This episode comes from a listener suggestion about a topic about which I was completely unfamiliar. Not only that, they were kind enough to email me info that was a great jumping off point for my research. Thanks to Rich Hughes for getting me started down the rabbit hole on today's subject. I'm Tommy Henry, host of the Chicago History Podcast. Today's topic is Villa Venice, spelled like Venice, Italy, pronounced Venice like Denise, a restaurant in Northbrook in the northern suburbs that started off as a roadhouse with food, drinking, and staged musical productions, and eventually developed serious mob ties. In 1962, this same Villa Venice hosted some of the hottest entertainers of that time for a week-long set of concerts and, well, you're just going to have to listen. According to a May 1914 Chicago Tribune article, the house that Jack built is a country club especially for motorists that is now nearing completion on a site on Milwaukee Avenue at the crossing of the Des River, about 22 miles northwest of the Loop District of Chicago. With plans to open on June 10th of that summer, the expense to build was $150,000, nearly $3.9 million in today's money. A garage with a capacity for 100 cars would also be available, and the clubhouse, as it was called, would be surrounded by a 17-acre tract of natural forest. By September 20th of that same year, the Tribune ran an article titled Roadhouse Wants Dues, in which it was explained that the house that Jack built was asking members to pay their 1915 dues then, and asking each member to bring in a new member. The reason for this, according to Secretary-Treasurer Harry G. Wurzinger at the time, was, quote, that we are about $25,000 in debt, and by this means we expect to raise not only that amount, but a surplus to be used in improvements we contemplate, end quote. He went on to say, quote, we are not in any serious financial difficulty. The $25,000 in debt, Wurzinger mentioned, would be almost $645,000 in today's money, they had been open less than six months. Wurzinger's appeal to members appears not to have worked, as just a few weeks later in a story in the Tribune titled Autoist Resort Still Open, House That Jack Built to Operate Despite Judgment Levy, says Secretary. Wurzinger claimed the house that Jack built is just as firm and substantial as ever. Quote, We can take care of all the people who visit us. The place has been stripped of some beds, curtains, draperies, and a few other artifices, but their absence does not appear to interfere with our business. End quote. I may not know much about running a business like this, but when you walk into a restaurant and the curtains and draperies have been repossessed, it is probably not a good sign. On August 13, 1918, the county commissioners refused liquor licenses for the house that Jack built and one other area bar. Deadlocked by a vote of 2-2, two to two, the issue was decided by the Committee on Public Welfare. Reading articles from the era, it appears that having driving mixed with drinking resulted in, quote, numerous motor accidents on the road, end quote. The liquor license issue must have been sorted out because an ad in the June 21st, 1921 Trib for the house that Jack built introduced a new name to the mix, Albert Boucher, manager, and went on with, quote, Chicago's famous rendezvous for automobilists on the Wheeling Road reopened Saturday, June 25th. Excellent cuisine, high-class entertainers, entrancing dance music, end quote. 
By June 23rd, newspaper ads promoted the house that Jack built as, quote, America's most beautiful roadhouse, with a large new stage and a 20-person international review performing three shows each night at 8 p.m., 11 p.m., and 2 a.m. Also... Public dancing and special acts between each dance. Music by James F. Wade's famous eight-piece orchestra. Cuisine unexcelled. Roads paved and patrolled for your protection. Milwaukee Avenue and Desplaines River Road. Phone Northbrook 5. On April 26, 1924, it was announced in local newspapers that the house that Jack built would become Villa Venice, and according to owner Albert Boucher, it would be painted white, flood-lighted, and $25,000 would be spent remodeling the building, and $15,000 would be spent on the grounds. Boucher also had a cafe in the Loop at the time called Moulin Rouge at 416 South Wabash, which was also being remodeled. Villa Venice, much like the house that Jack built, would only operate during the warmer months, usually between June and October. As expected on Saturday, June 14, 1924, the house that Jack built reopened as Villa Venice with 35 New York artists in picked production, $15,000 in costume, $100,000 improvements on lawn and interior drapery and decorations. Wait, were they just now getting around to replacing those drapes that were repoed all those years ago? Yikes. In August 1924, a group of Evanston do-gooders, led by Reverend Elmer L. Williams, raided Villa Venice and one other area roadhouse, hauling off roulette wheels and other gaming apparatus. It does not appear much came of this, other than a Chicago slap on the wrist. In 1925, a little club, a dinner and supper dance club, opened on 151 East Chicago Avenue under the same management as Villa Venice. I should point out, before I forget, that Papa Boucher, as he was also known, later also opened Villa Venice locations in Miami and in Dallas. By 1929, according to the Encyclopedia of Chicago, there were nearly 175 roadhouses in operation in the area. In case when I say roadhouse, you're picturing Patrick Swayze and Sam Elliott in the 1989 film Roadhouse, and really, why wouldn't you be? It uh, really isn't far off. Roadhouses of the 1920s and early 30s thrived because they were remote and not well-policed. The Edens Parkway, later known as the Edens Expressway, wasn't built until 1951. Before that, cars would have to take what were essentially country roads to get out to places like Villa Venice, and police usually left those operations alone. I found an ad in the June 30th, 1929 Chicago Tribune promoting two Albert Papa Boucher productions, a 9 o'clock show called Paris, New York, and a midnight show called Italian Siesta. Two musical comedies, the ad claims, comparable to those you would see in Paris. Promenade in our five acres of Venetian gardens that will lead you to the Italian gondolas and you will imagine yourself in Italy. Wait, the, the what now? It's true, behind the Villa Venice, you could walk to the edge of the Desplaines River and take a gondola ride. Boucher had original antique gondolas imported from Italy and allegedly needed permission from the Italian government to bring them to the U.S. And because I have said before in previous episodes, it is not a Chicago story without a bombing or a fire. 
Sure enough, on Halloween 1929, the Villa Venice was partly wrecked when a bomb exploded under the front porch, tearing away the front porch and blowing out the front wall of the building. Fortunately, Villa Venice was closed for the season, and the only one there at the time was Albert Boucher's wife, who was not injured. Boucher was in Florida at the time. Sergeant Laverne Rowder, that's a good cop name, of the county highway police investigated the bombing and said he believed it was, quote, an outgrowth of the beer racketeers war, which had been going on for several months among the roadhouses along the river road, end quote. In the February 16, 1930, Miami Herald newspaper, an open letter concerning Villa Venice from Albert Boucher's appears to be written to lay rest any question as to who owns and operates the Miami Villa Venice. Boucher claims it is entirely on him and his wife, and if anyone can prove otherwise, he would gladly donate $5,000 to any Miami charity designated. Shades of silent partners to come, maybe? Hmm. He also refers to the Villa Venice Miami being destined to become a true counterpart for his fashionable Villa Venice in Lake Forest, Illinois. Originally it was Wheeling, he refers to it here as Lake Forest, and now the address is Northbrook. Try to keep up. In April of 1930, it was reported a bomb composed of 10 sticks of dynamite was found lying beside the road in the Northfield Oakwood Cemetery, approximately a quarter mile from the Villa Venice. Although a place called Sportsman Club was actually closer to where the bomb was found, police were convinced that bomb was intended for the Villa Venice based on the previous incident from six months earlier. June 30th, 1941, a fire broke out in one of the dressing rooms at Villa Venice, allegedly started by a cigarette. Nothing suspicious was reported at the time, but the fire did do $50,000 damage, which is about $877,000 in today's money, destroying one-third of the building. Forty of the female entertainers lost all of their costumes and makeup, but after a trip to a Desplaines 10-cent store, they were able to, quote, replenish their beauty creams, end quote. I haven't mentioned it, but uh, there were hundreds, hundreds of ads promoting the shows at Villa Venice. Uh, it seems like there was one in every newspaper every day, with Albert Boucher's name becoming more and more prominent as the years went on. A 1949 ad read, Papa Boucher, the fabulous showman, brings European Revista to Chicagoans and suburbanites at his most beautiful theater restaurant, Villa Venice, with his Jardin Bar, Venetian gardens with millions of flowers and thousands of multicolored lights. A great production nightly with 26 artists and two orchestras. Dinners, $6 to eight fifty. The dinner is worth the price without the show, and the show is worth the price without the dinner. And in caps... This is a dinner you will remember for a lifetime. Next to this is a picture of a round-faced Boucher. By the 1950s, the ads featured Papa Boucher's name in a larger font than that of the actual restaurant. In 1952, an income tax lien was filed against Boucher's Villa Venice for $143,264, about $1.4 million in today's money for the years 1946 to 1950. A 1954 ad claimed Papa Boucher was the originator of the theater restaurant and, caps again, the introduction of Parisian shows to America. I didn't have time to confirm or dispute that claim, but if it is true, 
Wow. All of that on Milwaukee Avenue in what is now Northbrook. Now that's some history. In June of 1956, Papa Boucher's World's Beautiful Villa Venice opened for its 36th consecutive season. Papa is featured in the ad looking a little long in the tooth. In the Tower ticker column in the October 12, 1956 Chicago Tribune, it was announced, quote, Aging Papa Boucher sold his Villa Venice in Wheeling, and poof goes shy's most fantastic showplace, end quote. Although he sold his Chicago location as of December of 1956, he was still rehearsing with performers at his Villa Venice location in Miami, where he appears to have settled permanently, still showing up in newspaper pictures with a cigar in his mouth at the age of 76. By the late 50s, the slightly renamed Mio's Villa Venice had done away with the floor shows and focused on family meals. While Papa Boucher kept his Villa Venice open only during the summer and fall, Mio's Villa Venice was now open year-round, offering free gondola rides for kids. There was still dancing nightly with Joe DeSalvo and orchestra, but you can tell in the ads the focus had shifted away from what Papa Boucher promoted for 36 years. I read through a lot of announcements about ladies' luncheons being held at Mio's Villa Venice. Strangely, I could find very little about James Mio, the owner of Mio's Villa Venice, who it is said had silent partners in the operation. And one of those silent partners, a man named Sam Giancana, head of the Chicago Mafia. Giancana, in addition to, you know, running the mob, also arranged one of the biggest entertainment events of the area in 1962, one that was held at Villa Venice. According to the book Mafia Spies, The Inside Story of the CIA Gangsters, JFK and Castro by Thomas Mayer, Sam Giancana and his associate Johnny Rosselli were under the impression that their involvement with a secret CIA plot to assassinate Cuban leader Fidel Castro in the early 60s would get them a get-out-of-jail-free card. They were disappointed when singer Frank Sinatra, acting as a go-between with his mob pals and his Camelot friend, President John F. Kennedy could not get the Kennedys to back down from their investigations into the mafia. Giancana was furious and even had an offer by a Chicago wise guy to rub out not just Sinatra, but the entire Rat Pack. Sinatra, Dean Martin, Peter Lawford, and Sammy Davis Jr. Lawford was actually kicked out of the Rat Pack a few months before this. Giancana had other plans. Frank Sinatra's make good for failing to talk his pal Jack Kennedy into backing off Giancana and his associates. Sinatra, Dean Martin, and Sammy Davis Jr. would play eight nights at Villa Venice for free. Another factor that may have led to this Villa Venice ask, according to Antoinette Giancana, Sam's daughter, in her memoir, Mafia Princess, Giancana did Sinatra a favor by helping Sinatra's friend John Kennedy get key votes in West Virginia, critical in getting Kennedy elected in 1960. Top mob guys flew in from around the country on November 26, 1962 to watch the Rat Pack perform at the 800-seat auditorium. 
One FBI memo reported, quote, practically all of Chicago's top hoodlums, with the exception of Giancana, were present, end quote. The run sold out quickly with tickets going for $10 plus a $10 cover charge. That uh, in total is about $171 in today's money. During The Lady is a Tramp, Dean Martin ad-libbed a subtle line about the Rat Pack situation when he sang, I love Chicago, it's carefree and gay, I'd even work here without any pay. In addition to the big shows going on, a gambling casino was set up less than two blocks from Villa Venice, pulling in an estimated $200,000 in two weeks' time. It was estimated that the total take for the Sinatra Martin Davis run was between $275,000 and $300,000, which puts it in the neighborhood of $2.5 million in today's money. FBI agents attempted to get Sammy Davis Jr. to share anything he knew about Giancana's operation. Baby, let me say this, explained Davis, who lost his left eye years earlier in 1954 in an auto accident. I got one eye, and that one eye sees a lot of things that my brain tells me I shouldn't talk about. Because my brain says it, if I do it, my one eye might not be seeing anything after a while. There were recordings made of those shows you can find on Amazon. The Villa Venice never again hosted big-name stars. Dinah Shore was actually set to perform at the end of the Rat Pack shows, but that was canceled. There was one more big event at Villa Venice that made the news in June of 1964 when the son of Anthony J. Big Tuna Accardo... Anthony R. Accardo, then 29, married Miss Utah 1961, Janet Marie Hawley, 22, daughter of a Green River, Wyoming rancher at St. Vincent Ferrer Roman Catholic Church in River Forest, with the reception held at Villa Venice. The FBI and other law enforcement agencies were on hand at Villa Venice, taking notes and pictures. The senior Accardo, who came up in the mob as Al Capone chauffeur and muscle, his nickname was Joey Batters because of his use of a baseball bat to resolve a certain situation before taking the top spot himself for two decades, had a few years earlier handed that top spot to Sam Giancana. Even in a seemingly lesser role, Accardo was still a large presence in mob operations. A few newspaper headlines about the event. This, by the way, was all over the country, so these are taken from many newspapers. Big Tuna's Boy Weds Beauty. Gangland Wedding Draws Colorful Crew Bearing Cash. Apparently, guests giving the newlyweds envelopes of cash was foreign to reporters. Gangland Social World to Reach Peak When Crime Czar's Son Weds. Former Miss Utah Weds Son of Former Gangster. Hmm. It's, uh, it's got to look nice in the scrapbook. Uh, a few of the guests uh, at uh, the wedding and reception. Tony, Pineapples, El Dorado, Jimmy, the Monk, Allegretti, Paul, the Waiter, Rika, Murray, the Camel, Humphreys, Felix, Milwaukee, Phil, Aldericio, Willie, Potatoes, Dodano, and Jackie, the Lackey, Cerrone. All of these names kind of made me want my own mob name. Here's what I came up with. Tommy, Badback Henry. Tommy, no vertical leap, Henry. And Tommy, halitosis, Henry. That's, that's all I got. Not good, I know.
1965, Villa Venice once again had new owners, and in March of 1967, a mysterious fire broke out at 4 o'clock in the morning at Villa Venice, and despite the efforts of 60 firefighters, it was a total loss. When I asked my dad if he knew of Villa Venice, his response was, Oh yeah, the mob place. Everything burned up except the insurance papers. I love that. No sign of arson was ever proved. A Hilton hotel and a restaurant called Algowers on the riverfront now occupy the site. Albert Boucher died in Miami Beach, Florida in August of 1964 at age 83. In June of 1975, a gunman entered Sam Giancana's home in Oak Park, Illinois, and shot him seven times with a 22 while he was frying sausage and peppers in his basement kitchen. Tony Accardo spent his last years living in Barrington Hills, Illinois, with his son and daughter-in-law before dying at age 86 in 1992. Small world fun fact. Mob boss Tony Accardo's great-grandson, Nick Bosa, plays football, as of this writing, for the San Francisco 49ers, and Nick's brother Joey Bosa plays for the Los Angeles Chargers. Their father John played three seasons with the Miami Dolphins. Accardo's son-in-law Pyle Palmer played football with the Baltimore Colts, Minnesota Vikings, and the Oakland Raiders. Grandson Eric Kumro played three seasons of football for the Dolphins and one season with the Chicago Bears in 1991 before an Achilles injury cut his career short. And finally, another Accardo great-grandson, Jake Kumro, is a wide receiver for the Green Bay Packers and has been a member of the New England Patriots and the Cincinnati Bengals. Small world indeed. Did you ever visit the Villa Venice? In the summer of 69, Brian Adams, forgive me, listener Rich Hughes went for a late-night ride to the site with friends. According to Rich, there were still charred remains of the walls, tile floors littered with broken dishes, and other debris were lying about, as well as remnants of the dock where the gondolas were kept. Pretty cool. Do you have questions about anything covered today or have a topic you think might be a good fit for a future episode of the Chicago History Podcast? If so, send me an email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. I will be posting news articles, pictures, and ads from back in the day related to this episode on the Chicago History Podcast social media pages. Check it out and give us a like, please. Thanks, as always, to John K. Schneider for creating the Chicago History Podcast logo and the art used on the social media pages. He can be found at AngelEyesArtJKS on Instagram or via email at angeleyesartjks at gmail.com. If you would, please take a moment and like, subscribe, and kindly review this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, and tell a friend. No, wait, tell two friends. It helps us get the word out and reach new history fans and fans of Chicago. Get out and explore when possible, learn more about whatever city you live in, and stay safe. Thanks for listening. 